Commentary is for general information purposes only. Clients should seek professional advice for their particular situation. This is the sexiest topic right now. For those of you who have young children or grandchildren, you're likely familiar with the children book author, Julia Donaldson. She sells a book roughly every 11 seconds. Her famous books are The Gruffalo, Room on a Broom, The Snail and the Whale, and my personal favorite, The Smartest Giant in Town. Her hit book, The Gruffalo, has sold over 13 million copies and translated into more than 100 languages. The Gruffalo is the story of a clever mouse, three large animals that want to eat him, and an imaginary monster, a Gruffalo, who turns out to be only too real. The Gruffalo has noticeable features. He has terrible tusks and terrible claws and terrible teeth and his terrible jaws. He has knobbly knees and turned out toes and a poisonous wart at the end of his nose. The other night while I was up at 3 a.m. caring for my teething one-year-old, a thought occurred to me. Is the Gruffalo the equivalent to stagflation? Hear me out. For many of us, the stagflation environment in the U.S. is somewhat imaginary. We've heard of it, read about it, but few investors today have experienced it. Yet the word stagflation is being plastered all over the headlines. For me, stagflation is even scarier than the Gruffalo, for it has terrible growth and terrible price inflation and terrible unemployment with poisonous consumption. However, the question is whether we will see this seemingly mythical financial concept reveal itself in today's environment. Join me, Makan Nia, and my colleague Kevin Headland as we explore the likelihood of coming across stagflation. Listen on, this is Investments Unplugged. Welcome to Investments Unplugged. I'm Makan Nia, Co-Chief Investment Strategist at Main Life Investment Management, and I'm joined here uh, by my good friend and colleague and the better half of the co-chief investment strategist role, Kevin Headland. Thanks, Mahakan. I, I like that. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that. On, it's the first time ever the better half of anything. So, <laughs> I'm usually the worst half of most things. So it's uh, just a continuation of that theme. Well, I think we uh, have a very good pulse in terms of the investment community or the Canadian investor community, just given the amount of conversations that we have with the with the retail audience and one thing that we have noticed through questions and discussions is this stagflation we're noticing it a lot more on the front pages of financial media just in media in general we're noticing the word stagflation so we thought we'd dedicate this podcast to stagflation what it is and specifically, when we mention stagflation, there's one time period that comes up. It's the 1970s. And what we're going to do is compare the 70s to today and whether it is justified to be comparing these two periods. Now, before we get started, let's talk about the word stagflation, what it means. So it really is two parts. There's the stag part and there's the flation part. The stag part gets talking about economic growth or in this case, stagnation. So it's a period where you have sputtering economic growth. Now the flip side, that inflation part of it is inflation. So rising material inflation. 
And when you combine these two together, it's obviously not a great environment for the global economy. Now, when we look at reasons that it's come up, so I, we always like these Google searches, right? So the, the searches for uh, stagflation. So Google has this index. It's 0 to 100. So 100 obviously is peak popularity. Now, in the middle of summer, it was at 20. And it has risen to close to 70, 80 today. And Google estimates it could go as close to 90 or 100 as we enter the end of the year, as we transition to the end of the year. So it is peak popular right now. Bank of America has a survey of PMs and the number of managers expecting stagflation has rose by 14 percentage points in October to its highest level since 2012. So it is a very popular topic, one that we think we should address and kind of demystify. Let's go, let's talk about the two periods. So number one is during the 70s, we saw two recessions. We saw a recession in 73, 74, and we saw one at basically in the 1980, and then another one, 81, 82. But we saw two recessions. Now, you, we just went through a podcast where we laid out our thesis why the odds of a recession over the next year or a couple of years are quite low. So I think just comparing the two economic environments uh, from a GDP perspective, so GDP today is nowhere even close to being recessionary. Yeah, it is coming off from peak levels, but will still remain above that 2% range for the U.S. Manufacturing remains strong. LEIs remain strong. Let's talk to the employment aspect. Many investors weren't investing in the 70s. They maybe have living it. And when you hear stagflation, I think this is what it brings up. It brings up those images because the stagflation or the inflationary environment of the 70s was a result of this policy of the 60s. The U.S. government was spending very generously on the backs of the Vietnam War, there was very generous social programs combined with oil embargo, and then you have easy monetary policy. So I can see why people might want to compare the two periods. Kev, why don't you talk about those long lines of unemployment in the 70s are not even close to what we are experiencing today. Yeah, with employment, it's kind of interesting. It, it, people don't realize that is, is of course, employment drives um, the economy, right? It's consumption if people don't have jobs. Uh, they can't consume, they can't spend as much. And of course, that's negative for the economy. So back in the, the call it the mid 70s, uh, there's actually a couple of spikes in employment. You know, we hit actually above, um, you know, right, right around 9% uh, unemployment uh, in the mid 70s in 1975. And then came down again through the end of the 70s and then spiked again in, in during the recession of 81, 82 to just above 10%. Now, we're nowhere near that today. Uh, we just had non-farm payrolls uh, last week uh, on November 5th. They were actually stronger than expected. Improvements uh, with uh, 531,000 new jobs uh, created. It's actually a very positive employment environment. So the non-farm payrolls that we, we got last week uh, were actually uh, stronger than expected, um, ahead of consensus, with 531,000 uh, new jobs uh, being created. Yeah, and that's a great point. And not only is employment much different, the consumer balance sheet is much different today than what it was back in the 70s. Uh, consumer balance sheets are very robust today. Cash levels are high. I think another interesting thing is the oil environment. Because let's talk to oil because it is a, a driver for consumption. In the 70s, you can really segment it into two parts. The first period was in that 73-74 period. So we'll refer that to period one. And then that second period was the late 70s, so 79, 80. We'll refer to that as period two. Now, we saw oil shoot up materially in both of those periods. 
on the backs of geopolitical risk, actual geopolitical risk. So in the 73-74 was the famous oil embargo. So the members of OPEC, essentially led by Saudi Arabia, proclaimed an oil embargo. And what they did that for was an embargo to target those nations that supported Israel during the Yom Kippur War. And we saw oil prices really quadruple during that period. Now the second one, and this one's very familiar with me because it's maybe one of the reasons I'm in Canada today, is the whole Iranian revolution and the 1979 oil crisis or the second oil shock. Same thing back then, uh, the energy crisis, you saw shoot up in the price of oil in the wake of the Iranian revolution. Their union of oil workers went on strike. And as a result, and then you have the war afterwards, you saw oil production come down. And as a result, you saw prices come back up. Now, some point to the price of oil today shooting up. But this is not based on geopolitical risk. This is based on primary, we believe, is demand. Some of it being a lack of investment over the past couple of years, but driven by demand. And secondly, I think what's important to that, uh, when I look at OPEC today, I don't think they're in a position to quickly want oil prices to go up north of 100 they're very happy right now in that $80 range. They're making money. The last thing they want is oil prices to shoot up materially, let's say north of 100 in a short period of time to induce a recession, only to see oil prices come back off maybe to that 30, 40, or even probably lower range for that. So when we look at even the oil environment today, yes, oil has shot up today, but the reasons are different. It's not a... a, a call it a shock to economic consumption just yet. The gasoline prices of the pump have gone up, but it hasn't shocked the consumer into, you know, no longer using or or not no longer being able to um, fill their, their cars and, and, and materially inflationary. And I think also what happened um, or now versus, versus back then was the view of inflation actually changed. And this is when they decide to uh, incorporate core inflation and headline inflation. So core inflation... Uh, eliminating the the price of uh, energy and food because those are more uh, volatile parts of inflation. So understanding that there's two different types of inflation that can be controlled and those that can't be controlled um, and understanding that um, if we look at core versus headline, there is differences and and perhaps uh, we can't overreact when energy prices uh, jump, uh, which are not in the control of central banks. This is going to be a midterm issue. The U.S. midterms are happening next year. Inflation is a very, it's going to be politicized, I think. Essentially, President Biden has come out and he says, we're ready to release some strategic reserves and we believe we can make up for the lack of, let's say, supply for the rest of the year. So there are solutions. But to really, I guess, let's look at growth in general. It's in a, I can't take credit for this, Kev. This is your quote. We, it's not fair to compare the 70s from a growth perspective uh, to today it's not comparing apples to oranges, it's comparing apples to potatoes. The environments are much different. Growth is much stronger today. Um, unemployment uh, is much lower today. The consumer balance sheet is in a better position. So from that stagflation perspective, so the stag part, it's not really stag. What we have said, it's kind of slow, right? A slowflation environment. So more slowing economic activity, but slowing does not mean weak. And I think that's very important to get across. Now let's transition to the second part, half of that word is uh, the flation part. And this is the 
sexiest topic, regardless of who you talk to, it can be with an advisor, it can be with your family members. We had a US print yesterday come out 6.2% surprise to even more of the upside. Let's compare the two periods, Kev. Let's talk about the inflationary environment in the 70s and the interest rate and compare it to today. In period one, let's say, so period one, when we said it was in that 72 to 74 period, we saw inflation start off 3%, shot up within a couple of years to 12%, very material. And then the second part of that decade, we saw inflation go from 5% to 15% roughly. And during that period, rates obviously went from three and a half for the first period to 13% and 4.75 to 20%. We compare inflation today, and yes, inflation has gone up. It's up at 6%. Kev, you'll talk to where we think inflation is going to transition into 2022. Markets are forward-looking, not backwards-looking. And then also where rates are today. And it's very obvious that it's these two are completely different environments. Well, it's interesting you talk about uh, inflation, and it's on the, the minds of everyone uh, the University of Michigan uh, puts out a consumer sentiment index, and, and the recent um, sentiment index is actually fairly low. That, that means that, on average, the consumer doesn't feel great about the environment. And it actually asks further details and says, what are you worried about or why are you you know, using these numbers? Why are you less uh, positive? And this time around, um, unlike in the late summer, which was COVID was the number one issue, this time around, the number one issue is inflation. And as you said, it's going to be a popular subject when the campaign trails uh, have start and, and people get on there because people are concerned about prices. You know, they're definitely concerned about price going up and, and food prices and whatnot. So, um, yeah, it's, you're, it's definitely going to come to a, a government issue. Um, one of the other things also is uh, is have um, one of the, the indexes I've uh, been looking at uh, during this discussion is called the Misery Index. And the misery index, it sounds terrible, but it essentially it's just uh, you put together the unemployment rate and the rate of inflation, and it gives you a level of misery, uh, essentially because it comes from the period in the 70s when inflation and unemployment are so high, it, it definitely has a negative impact on the economy, right? Because if prices go up and you have you have lose your job, you have less money, clearly that's an issue, right? But right now, the misery index is is elevated and people are pointing to that as, oh, this is one of the reasons it's similar to the 70s. But it's only up because inflation is higher, right? We haven't seen 6% inflation in close to 20 years. Uh, so that it's not a cause for concern. You have to understand the components and, and why, it's, why it's elevated. That's a great point. And I think the politics aspect of it is actually a positive thing, I think, if you want inflation to come down. President Biden met with basically the CEOs of Walmart, Target, all the big boys, and talking about how we how they can help bring down these issues with supply chains. It is on the front page, so now it's on the briefing page of the of the president. Now you have the resources of the U.S. government behind this to try to bring inflation down. They can only control certain things, of course, uh, but at the margin, I think they can control things. And Kev. One area that I think is interesting and we've heard a lot about is the port of Los Angeles, right? So it's the largest port on the Western seaboard. It is where the majority of imports from China come into the largest consumption economy in the world. 
And uh, mar- on the margin, there are changes happening and they are having an impact on inflation. Talk to us about in terms of a couple of things that are interesting to you. Well, it's interesting. And, and the, I think there's a, a lot of following in terms of the amount of uh, cargo ships uh, sitting anchored uh, off the port of Los Angeles. If you uh, go to California, you can actually see them uh, in the ocean. Uh, but right now, as or as of November 3rd, uh, just the Southern California Marine Exchange actually reported a total of 159 ships in the port complex of Los Angeles and Long Beach. Uh, so that's uh, 102 container ships with 76 uh, at anchorage uh, in drift areas and 26 at actually at the berth or terminals. Um, now, the container vessels are waiting an average of 13 to 14 days uh, to reach a terminal to unload. Uh, which is extremely long compared to um, normal environment. What was it pre-COVID? I think it was two, three days, right? They would be waiting. Yeah, it was quick in and out. And one of the things that I actually looked at uh, and was reading, it was a really interesting article that it wasn't just space or the activity in the port. Um, One of the issues was it was the bylaw of Long Beach in terms of uh, warehousing of empty cargo containers. And the bylaw stated that you could only stack two containers on top of each other. So the problem was there's actually a lot of trucks waiting to unload empty containers before they could pick up full containers to get out of the the, uh, the port of Los Angeles and Long Beach. So uh, when you talk about uh, intervention by government, the actual uh, municipality of Long Beach adjusted temporarily that bylaw to now allow for four uh, cargo containers to be stacked on top of each other. And what we've actually noticed is a uh, drop in the time that it takes for cargo ships to actually unload um, within the port of Los Angeles. So there's already been one influence or a couple influences of, of government uh, to impact uh, that part of the supply chain, but it's just one aspect of the supply chain. There's so many others that are much harder to uh, to change when you look at you know weather and droughts in, in South America and whatnot, um, this is just one aspect, but it, it's nice to see that that is at least looked at and being changed. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it, something happened, there was a rule change a couple of, I think it was two, three weeks ago, which just blew my mind why they didn't do this much sooner, was the Biden administration got the port really be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Like, why weren't they open like that to begin with? where let's not go down that road. So at the peak, as Kevin mentioned, these ships were waiting basically 17 and a half days to be unloaded. And then this new policy came into place and that shot right down to 10 and a half. So we're still much higher than that two and a half. But as you mentioned, Kev, I wonder, it'll be very interesting as we follow this. It's obviously, I think, going to go lower than 10 and a half with this new rules where you can stack uh, four instead of two. And that's actually one of my just shows you how much of a nerd I am in terms of one of my uh, wish list things to do is I would love to actually go on one of these containers because these things are massive and I think we kind of fail to realize how big and how much storage they have but now I'm just rambling so let's move on to things that are more important in terms of our inflation expectations because I think this is something that we nailed right on at the beginning of the year based on a lot of metrics that we follow but primary one of them being our inflation model so we saw this inflationary environment unfolding in the second half of the year and i think it's important in investing is not to get too cocky or get your head too big or just fall in love with a call that's been right so we are 
always looking at this trying to okay when is this going to turn is this going to turn and you know what our view for inflation for the second half of next year is nothing even close to what it is today so kev walk us through the inflation model what's in it the variables that we put in i guess the levels we put in and what the inflation model is telling us in terms of what to expect in let's say 2022, but more importantly, the middle part of 2022. So our inflation model uh, goes back to uh, the late 90s, I guess, because that's when we have the data. And it's just a regression model, and it's using four factors. So we look at uh, owner equivalent rent or or the cost of of housing, essentially. We look at the U.S. dollar currency uh, because the U.S. dollar, if it's lower, is actually inflationary as Americans import a lot of goods and the lower U.S. dollar translates to higher prices for imports. We look at oil prices, of course, as they're a large uh, reason for inflation. Um, and lastly, wages, because that's another big cause of inflation. As, as wages go up, people have more money, and therefore uh, they can spend more money on specific goods, so it becomes a supply-demand uh, dynamic. So when we look at our inflation, we rolled forward. Uh, we just updated it with the October data yesterday. Uh, so it is expected to come down. It's not going to stay at 6%. You know, and I think this is where when the Federal Reserve talks about transitory, the definition transitory to me is it's going to remain elevated for some time. It's going to come back down. But at the same time, it's not going to come back down to levels it was pre-COVID. We're likely to see it to remain above 2% for quite some time. And our inflation model actually shows it will remain above 3% uh, through the summer of next year and will moderate only to 2.5% by end of next year. So well above the 2% target for the Fed, um, not 6%, but still uh, definitely inflationary, uh, but uh, not. We, I don't think we should be fearful of that this 6% level uh, will remain uh, through uh, the end of next year. Yeah, and even put 6% aside, if it was 4% sustained, for next couple of years, that would be something to be very concerned with. But I'm very comfortable uh, with two and a half, three percent, and as you mentioned, a little bit more than three percent. That's something uh, that I think consumers can really digest. I think that's something corporations can digest. So I think it would not surprise me if at this point next year, if we did another podcast around this topic, where stagflation or inflation are not the, on the front pages of the Financial Times or Wall Street Journal or whatever, uh, the Globe and Mail. Before we wrap it up, question, putting you on the spot. So 70s seemed like a horrible environment or decade for investing, You investing in U.S. stocks, right? You had out-of-control inflation, oil prices spiking, you had unemployment really high, the economy, two recessions. Out of 10 years, how many years was the S&P 500 positive? Between 1970 and 1980. Um, out of 10 years, I'm going to say eight. You're actually not. That's pretty good, Kev. During the 1970s decade, despite multiple recessions, multiple spikes in oil prices, rising unemployment, The S&P 500 still was up seven of those 10 years on a price index perspective. Now, when we look at the average returns during the decade, that was the 70s. And when you include those three negative return years, the average return per year was 3.2%. 3.2% per year 
despite negative returns of negative 17.4, negative 29.7, and 11.5 in the years of 73, 74, and 77. Now, when you strip out those three negative calendar year returns, the return was 14.5%. When we are investing, yes, we are investing in companies. We're investing in companies first. And those companies are impacted by the broader economy, of course, but each company's nuances are different with how they react or how they perform in that environment. And I think you've mentioned this several times in this type of market where we had that initial sell-off, then this very quick recovery. We are now in the normalization environment. And historically, in a normalization environment, companies with quality growth profiles, visibility with cash flow and earnings are the ones that will outperform in this market. And we have seen it in the most recent quarter. It's these companies that had really the visibility with their earnings are being questioned. They are getting crushed. So I think even in this environment, as we go into next year, it's very important for ones, whether it's equity or fixed income uh, solutions to be more tilted to that quality uh, style. The last thing I wanted to cover actually before we just end is a question I hear all the time or get all the time is, okay, inflation is elevated and perhaps stickier than a lot of people expected. What does the Federal Reserve do? Can they raise rates to combat inflation? Because that's that's the playbook, right? Inflation goes up, the Federal Reserve raises rates. Um, and I think one thing we've noticed through the stickier inflation, I say, because persistent, we can call it whatever it is, but enduring longer than expected for most, I think, except for maybe us, is that this is mostly a supply-induced inflation rather than demand-induced. So the Federal Reserve raising rates is not necessarily going to improve supply chain disruptions or, or change much the supply chain. You know, I don't think we believe the, the Federal Reserve is going to overreact to this recent inflation number. Uh, I think they understand it is what it is and why it is. Um, and they're going to uh, do what they can within their control. And I think it also lends itself to what you just talked about is companies. I think the companies that have a measure of control over their pricing, have flexibility over their pricing, have flexibility or more control over their business, that will allow them to perhaps uh, outperform uh, during these the short-term inflation disruptions or, or, or problems that we're seeing? There's several things that are leading to the spike in inflation today. I think the majority of those will, are likely to come down over the next year. One that I think is going to remain is wages. Wages are sticky. Once you increase wages, it's very difficult to really cut that back down. And that, I think, may be the reason that our inflation model is remaining above that 2.5% range relative to historical levels. I think that's probably a good, uh, good area to stop, Kev. I think uh, we covered stagflation in the 70s to today. We just don't think there even you can compare the two periods. As you mentioned, it's apples to potatoes. The, the dynamic when it comes to the inflationary environment, the dynamic when it comes to the economic environment are very different. And I think it's very important for those cli- end clients that may want to react or preemptively react by reducing equities based on these headlines, history will suggest that that decision is probably going to be short-sighted. And the overall environment for 2022, as we go into 2022, will be supportive for equities. There will be bumps, of course, 
But I think when you, if you were to invest on Jan 1st and look back on December 31st, you will be very happy with the return profile, not only out of U.S. equities, but just equities in general. Yeah, this isn't the 70s. Keep your bell bottoms uh, in the closet. Uh, it's not happening. It's a whole different environment. <laughs> I think that's a perfect area to stop. <laughs> that's hilarious. So great discussion, Kev. Thank you so much. And thank you uh, to the audience. Again, we very we appreciate the feedback that we receive on a daily basis for those who listen in, uh, for the feedback as well. If there's topics that you would like us to address, contact your main life wholesaler and they can um, pass it along to us or reach out directly to us. You can find us on LinkedIn. Many of you have our emails. If there's a topic that you think that will help with your discussions with your end clients, feel free to uh, send them along. And again, if you find that these podcasts are useful or are entertaining, please rate us. It helps us in terms of our standings and getting the exposure to other like-minded individuals in the financial space. So with that, uh, I'm Mark Nia. And Kevin Hedlund. Thank you for listening in to Investments Unplugged. Copyright Manulife. Commentary is for general information purposes only and shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, or other advice and does not constitute an offer or an invitation by or on behalf of Manulife Investment Management to any person to buy or sell any security. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and or the sub-advisor of Manulife Investment Management and are subject to change based on market and other conditions. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from any use of this information. Manulife funds are managed by Manulife Investment Management Limited, formerly named Manulife Asset Management Limited. Manulife Investment Management is a trade name of Manulife Investment Management Limited. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts and perspectives before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. This information does not replace or supersede KYC, know your client suitability, needs analysis, or any other regulatory requirements.